So I had a fucking nightmare getting here, you knew that? No, I didn't. You looked a bit dishevelled. Do I look haggard? A bit, no, no. you look like you, I don't know, I feel a bit of a hurricane. I feel haggard, right? So everything was going well. I've had a lot on today, but, you know, right. I can handle it. I'm a, you know, I'm a grown man. Um, but then I was rushing to get ready, lost my laptop. Yeah, you said. Yeah, that's, that's um, anyway, rushing to get ready, brought my work laptop instead, um, cycled down, all the way down, Hmm. Probably the the hill with the biggest gradient in Britain. That's not that's not official, but that's just what I feel like it is. Mm. It does um, got to the bottom of the hill. Yeah, uh, forgot my headphones. Oh right? no! I've just ordered some new headphones, by the way. I shouted the c word so loudly, an old woman looked at me, <laughs> <laughs> and then cycled all the way back up the hill and back down. Oh bless you! That is a bit of a nightmare. Yeah, nightmare. Anyway, so uh, so yeah, so you you've got squash at seven. So let's um let's get on with it. Let's eh? get cracking, shall we? So who are so, you? So my name's Alex. I'm Henry. And uh, this is Commons Commotion. So we're going to talk about uh, some of the big topics this week. What are we going to talk about, Henry? Uh, we got budget, ministerial yeah, budget. code. Mm. Got the fishing row, COP twenty six. What's been going on there? Mm. So far, so far, so far. I'm sure lots more boring stuff will be coming. Mm. Uh, and interest rate rises. <laughs> I think that's all. I think that's about it, isn't it? Not that much has gone on. I think a lot of people have been focused on COP. Um, a lot of people have been focused on COP, and I think I think because we did the because we did a bit of the budget like whispers yeah. um, on Sunday, um, uh, last Sunday, not Sunday, it's gone. Um, and then the budget came, and mm-hmm. then a lot of news has happened since that. So I think let's let's should we start with the big one the big budget yeah let's get on with it shall we do you want to do you want to start well I just you know compose myself after that yeah you compose cycle. yourself um, so this has sort of been hailed as sort of an end to austerity uh, because obviously there's real term cash for all public department all um, departments in government um, real term rises although only three departments return to pre twenty ten levels mm-hmm. so. Yes, it is an, at the end of austerity, but in no way, shape, or means is it returned to sort of the funding and the the money the public services had and performance yeah. had two thousand ten. Yeah, um, uh, agree with that. I mean, I mean, you can't blame this chancellor for for that. I mean, he's still he's still spending more on government departments and putting more in in real terms. Um, but I would agree. Yeah, that, that what, what they're essentially doing is you know. Um, just putting back in some of what they've already taken away. Yeah. Um, but you know, you can, I don't. I don't feel too. I, I can't blame the chancellor really for that because he, he is spending, um, especially when I think it is quite difficult to spend at the moment with the some of the issues that we've got going on. Um, Thing is, though, in terms of spending, okay, if I could quickly interject there. See what you already have. So. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, the the relationship between borrowing and the the lender. The borrower and the lender is very different to the way we, if you or I as an individual, were to borrow money. Yeah. Like we borrow from the, the the government borrows from the Bank of England, right? And the bank that Bank of England can't exactly send it over the bailiffs, can they? They've got. What I'm saying is they've got all the time in the world to to pay back the the, the money that they borrowed. So yeah. it's a bit it's a bit different, but yeah, I, I agree. That but the bank, but the Bank of England isn't just going to give you an unlimited amount of money. You could argue that perhaps well, that's what they have been doing, just by printing loads and doing well, sort of things like quantitative easing. But that causes issues, and it causes issues yeah. like inflation and things that we're seeing it's, it's now. First rule of economics, isn't it? You print more money. <laughs> yeah, going up. Yeah, probably. What else was announced? So we've also got that the public sector pay freeze um, has been ended. To me, that one it, it, it is one that sounds really good. Like you, you think, oh wow, that's uh, that's pretty good. But actually, it doesn't really 
obviously it was going to end because inflation is rising. So you can't just keep the public sector stuck on you know a single level of pay. It needs to rise at least maybe not even by inflation. He hasn't even said how much it's going to rise by. You might not even take into account you know the independent committees that are deciding the pay rises. You might t- not even take their recommendation into account. So. so it just so happens that I have a lot of knowledge on the subject of uh, one particular area of public sector um, mm. wages. Where do you work? I'm working the NHS, mate. Yeah. I just happened to run a bit of a bit of a. Do you keep that on the download? Bit of a grassroots <laughs> campaign about it. Okay. Um, and yeah, so the the government so far actually accepted the the recommendation of the independent public, um, the independent body that decides um, NHS uh, wages. Um, but yeah, you're right. Like there's lots of announcements in this budget about yeah end of the public sector pay freeze. Obviously, you've got the minimum wage going up to nine pound fifty. But you know, at inflation, which is sort of predicted at four, maybe maybe five percent, well, you're going to have to. Otherwise, people, you know, even more so, are going to be hit so hard in the pocket. People are going to, yeah. you know, they're sort of saving themselves and thinking about the next election. Thinking if we don't protect people's pay packets people are going to see that in their pay packets they're going to feel like they've been hard done by this government and they'll they'll vote differently to be honest when i looked at the the budget like on the day and probably the next day i thought well i actually really like this there's a lot of policies and a lot of changes in it that i that i like and i think that quite a lot happens with the budget but when you actually look or when some analysis is done on what that actually means usually it's quite a lot of sort of words and maybe things that have already been promised previously and I feel like that's quite a lot of what's happened so an area that I sort of know a bit about is obviously energy um, and I'm I'm pretty concerned because obviously last week we talked about the budget rumours of them maybe removing VAT or giving um, from energy prices or giving people maybe even actual cash you know to help cover you know the rising cost of, of energy in fact with, what's with ha- the boilers we no, no, like like France did, for example, where you just give you know each person like hundred quid or something. Obviously, they haven't they haven't announced anything at all. Like absolutely nothing was was, was said in the budget about the energy crisis. Um, and now it's come out that the regulator Ofgem are looking at what they normally do is they'll set a price cap for six months, and then after that six months they'll then reevaluate. Does the cap need to go up? Does the cap need to go down? Um, and the cap obviously determines how much consumers are charged for their energy. The cap just went up, um, but it's obviously no way enough covering what it should be, obviously, because I'm now um, going to be unemployed because my energy firm's gone out of business. But they're now looking at increasing the cap well before the six months. They're talking about maybe next month increasing the cap. It could be up to 30% increase for households on their energy bills. Um, And I'm just concerned that that the government didn't mention that at all, didn't mention anything about that whatsoever. Um, and a few details I think were missed in the budget. Um, another thing that wasn't mentioned at all was the environment, like yeah, barely. I've got that, I've got that on my uh, my list. I mean, I know that they um, released their net zero plan um, the, sort of the week before, they, the week yeah. before. But um, one really big thing that was missing was um, they obviously said they wanted ninety billion from private investors to invest um, and help grow sort of um, UK uh, environment sector and that kind of thing. 90 billion a year they said the private sector was going to basically invest to help cover the government shortfall so I thought in the budget okay I'll be really interested to hear you know what their methods are going to be to get those private investors to do that no didn't say a single word just basically mentioned net zero said something about cop and that was it I just feel like right now shouldn't 
environment be like number one absolutely especially on a background of cop you 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 saw a real lack of especially in some of the headline policies real lack of just anything you know any anything environment related anything green related um i I did see one that said what there was going to be some new relief given to companies that were investing in green technologies but in terms of the headline duties what what i could find on in the news sites there was barely anything on it and i think especially on a background of cop where we are really leading Mm. and trying to really encourage uh, uh, other countries and and the world to sort of step up and do their bit to keep world um yeah, we'll come on to it a bit later. You know, world temperatures under one point five degrees pre-industrial levels. Uh, it was absolutely there was nothing there. And to, to it's a nice little segue here. You've got this obviously leads on to uh, Rishi Sunak saying that he was going to cut uh, air passenger duty for domestic flights, yeah, which is totally look. backwards, yeah. isn't it? Um, well, didn't well Rachel Reeve when she came up and sort of actually did really well, I think, covering for Keir Starmer, said, you know. A really good line. What did she say? Something like the bankers taking their domestic flights, shipping their, uh, sipping their cheaper champagne, will be the ones cheering this budget. Yeah, that's right. I yeah. just don't see what, what, why are you taking away the duty for domestic flights? We talked about a couple of weeks ago. That's such a good idea, adding a duty for longer haul flights yeah. and, and and putting that on top. But I feel like it should be even higher for domestic because you don't actually need to do it. I've only ever flown once domestically and that was all the way from Bristol to Edinburgh if you're flying from like Bristol to Liverpool Bristol to Newcastle you can just get the train mm. I just feel like the cost if you really want to fly then unfortunately you're gonna to have to pay for that net zero offsetting that occurs absolutely and, and the money that would that would have cost why didn't you invest that instead in public transport yeah right just, into in, in greener public transport I, I just didn't get it and uh, just to mention about Rachel Reeves uh, I'd just like to say well done to uh, I'm just going to set timer so we know how long I'm going. Okay. Um, well done to Rachel Reeves because it's really hard um, to talk about the budget um, on budget day because usually and I know it's not the same now because there's been lots and lots of leaks and I know Lindsay Hoyle the speaker so Lindsay Hoyle has been sort of ripping on on Rishi because he's been linking it to the the press before he actually announces it in Parliament but it's really hard because you actually have to think on your feet yeah um, because suppose you know some of those things she's hearing for the first time so it's really hard it's one of the hardest things to do in parliament is to is to react to definitely and i mm. think it, it's not helped as well by the fact that three or four hours before she didn't even know she was going to be doing it she had no time to prepare yeah. whatsoever she only did it because kia you know unfortunately caught covid um i think she could you know be something really great when i was listening to all her quotes and things i thought wow like she actually sounds like she knows what she's talking about um, what else was mentioned? So obviously, the minimum wage is being increased by seven percent. Mm-hmm. Um, to be fair, you can't you can't really not that. I think that's pretty good. Seven percent is a pretty large rise. It's, it's well above inflation. Just to give it a bit of context, though, but it's just as well that minimum wage is going to go up because you're going to see those same people getting that increase being hit by the national insurance hike uh, that's going to come in next year. Yeah. Plus, you've got inflation. So just as well, I think there'll be a big uproar um if that wasn't the case but the thing is if inflation doesn't get under control you're going to see bigger really like larger wage demands from trade unions Mm -hmm. because you know uh, for example you know that that wage is getting ever closer to some people that work in the nhs Mm -hmm. you know and i don't uh, not me per se because 
you know, I've, I'm, I'm a registered practitioner, whatever. But, you know, some of the lower paid people in the NHS are going to start, you know, if you don't make working in the NHS, especially in some of the lower bands, attractive, you're not going to be able to retain the staff because they're going to think, do you know what, I could do a much less stressful job, much less, you know, hands-on, dirty job, whatever, working minimum wage than what Yeah, but, okay, yes, that's very true. But all I'm saying is you can't, knock, you. You can't knock it for them doing it. Absolutely not. Seven percent is a pretty is a pretty large rise. Um, another thing they did for um, uh, wait a minute, just 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 sorry, just to quickly, they are only acting upon the the commission for low pays recommendation by doing that. Yeah. So it's not off their own bat. They're just going. Yeah, we accept those recommendations. Okay, but they're still doing it. Yeah. Okay. Good, good. on them. Um, <laughs> something they're also doing for lower um, income people um, especially people on universal credit is cutting the taper rate from 63 to 55p Mm. um, which basically means that if you're working and you're on universal credit it means that you doesn't it mean if you earn more you pay what is it the more you work the more money you get. The more you work, the more money you get. So, so it doesn't it doesn't cut off earlier, depending on your earnings. Essentially, mm-hmm. um, I mean, gonna... that, I mean, I think that's fine. I think that's is something that needed to be put in. Apparently, um, analysts thought that the taper rate was going to be cut anyway, but they also expected that other measures were going to be put in place um, to sort of help with the twenty pounds uplift that was removed. In fact that was the only thing that was that was put in place. Mm. Um, and sixty percent of people who are eligible for universal credit won't be eligible to get this taper rate at all. So actually it's not great. I mean it's fine, but it, it comes no way close to removing well, it's, it's you know, taking away a tenner and it's sorry, taking away twenty quid and giving you a tenner, isn't it? Yeah, essentially. Yeah. Um so yeah, not great. I think Rachel Reeve did, did um, pick up on that in the in the budget speech, um, and also I, I think it's also worth mentioning that this budget, you know, we we are as the general public going to be having the highest taxation since the 1950s, which I think is going to cause a lot of unrest on the Tory benches because you know you've got the Tory party being low taxation, low regulation party. Um, there's going to be a lot of uh, shuffling about and a lot of uncomfortableness on the back benches because politically, hmm. that's not what they're used to. It's interesting though because it's a, a unique set of circumstances, it is. isn't it? I mean, um, when when the tax rates were previously highest in the 50s, it was because you know we just come out of the Second World War and we need to pay for you know social things, rebuilding, um, massive homes projects, etc., a newly formed NHS, etc. Um, and and now we're just coming out of a, an equally seismic um, crisis in terms of the economy. Um, so I think yeah, that there is some shuffling around, and I I actually don't think that it's something that Sunak really wants to do. I don't think it's he he likes increasing taxes particularly, um, but he's basically essentially banking on growth in the economy, where wages are going to grow the economy is going to grow and that's going to sort of balance itself out because although taxes are rising your your wage will engrossing and and, and and you know the economy will grow i'm not sure it's going to work personally because i if you look at the long-term forecast for growth i think after this year coming after 2022 growth is only going to be about 1.4% or something like that, which is actually less than it was pre-pandemic. I think that's concerning. Yeah, that is concerning. And also, I I saw somewhere, a a graphic somewhere, that apparently OBR forecasts for growth have not never never been as high 
since 2000, March 2017. They've no, never got it right and they've always, um, always overshot it, okay. um, which is, is worrying. Um, and I, I can't remember where I read it or what, where I listened to it, but apparently, um, I agree with this, I think the budget is very much aimed at red wall voters. Would you agree? Absolutely. Because it's, you know, I think red wall voters can hide can tolerate a higher level of spending because you've, you've got them usually voting traditionally for Labour um, and also can tolerate higher taxes. As, as well. long as it's going into things like NHS, yes. Yes. transport, which are big announcements by Sunak. He's very happy to announce increase on transport and, and to increase uh, incre- uh, introduce sort of an increase into the NHS of £6 billion. So I would agree it's something that middle class people would be more than happy to accept. However, when you actually look at the budget this is actually a budget that hurts them the, the most. I mean, um, the, the lower classes... Was that... Are you allowed to say lower classes? Working now? class? The working classes. <laughs> the, the lower classes. The working class is, um, you know, um, have had some some things put in which makes life a little bit easier for them. And definitely the higher classes have put things that makes life easier for them. It's upper class, I think. God, you, you can't say anything. Minister, these what, days. what would you, what class would you consider yourself to be in, Minister? Um, f- firmly middle. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, the, but because of the national um, insurance increase yes. and a lack of anything else to stimulate the middle class, means that they are going to be hit by far the hardest. Probably going to be paying an extra two to three hundred pounds per month on average. What? I've got it here. Go on. Apparently, the. Institute for Fiscal Fiscal Studies says middle earners are going to be hit the hardest by this budget, and apparently it's going to say the average worker is going to be thirteen thousand pounds worse off um, by the middle of the twenty twenties compared to two thousand ten. So what does that mean? Does that mean so that's probably t- uh, missing out in wage growth, more taxation, Wait, potentially so, in so, um, inflation? So that's just like by what by twenty twenty five mid. That's, I'm, I'm merely quoting. What <laughs> yeah, um, I, you know, I, I think that yeah, it's a, it's a, on the first look, it's a budget that that looks quite good and it's quite flashy, but actually, it's something that hurts me and you probably the most. Yeah. Um, so yeah, not ideal. What do you think about the alcohol duties? Do- yeah, it's um, it's not. It's not a wild... I mean, you spent a long time talking about them, but it's not a wild change. Essentially, all he's done is he simplified alcohol duty. It's, it's, it's mindlessly confusing as it is because it's been in place since, like, the 1600s. I also think that the the alcohol industry, retail, retail and hospitality, are maybe not so much retail, but I think definitely hospitality is not the industry that's struggling at the moment because we've got... We're, we, we, we're, lo- we're unlocked... We've got the easing of, of coronavirus restrictions. Um, you know, I, I, why not? Why cut the tax on alcohol? Is that just a sort of a try and get a populist move? Is it? What, no, what is it? It, it isn't. All they all they've done is simplify the duty, and and they've have made some drinks more expensive and some drinks cheaper. Actually, the majority of drinks are actually becoming slightly more expensive. It's just what's happening is that beer some sparkling wines I think are becoming cheaper because what instead of beer used to have its own special duty because it's beer obviously very popular but now all that's happening is they're putting it in a scale so the higher the percentage of the drink the higher rate of tax essentially but yeah obviously it's a populist move to to reduce I mean I don't I don't necessarily disagree with that but I just don't think that why why you know in terms of trying to get 
mon- you know trying to milk the the money the money cow as much as possible why wouldn't you just leave the the tax on beer the same because people mm-hmm. are still going to buy it yeah. 3p is is in the grand scheme of things when you and i when you are i when you and i are at the pub buying a pint we're not going to notice that too much why not just leave that the same apparently it's only about 600 million pounds saved from from all those ta- those um alcohol tax duties fiddling yeah i think you know don't look too much into it mate just making uh, it easier for everyone that's all i just I, you, think, I, you think you think there's an ulterior ulterior motive i, I think it was just a headline a grabber of, a headline grabber it's a public pleasing headline yeah. isn't it well alcohol drinkers yeah yeah that's true um I also what I a couple of things that I did agree with um, was the there was sort of a, to help businesses uh, post COVID was that they've frozen the annual increase in business rate in the second year. Trying to I think that one of the reasons for that was trying to save the high street, and I'm, I'm totally for that. And also, they're doing a one year fifty percent discount for businesses in retail, and hospitality, and leisure, um, which I again completely agree with. I think this is re- really it's not going to help like the big corporations per se, but it's going to help small business owners. I'm all about that. Yeah, I think that was really good, and, and obviously, it's it's all part of you know saving the high street and all and all this other stuff. Um, it's also, I think, quite clever because um, it kind of looks like leveling up, even when mm. it's not really. Because if, if all these shops stay open and some more open, things look more prosperous, even if perhaps they're not. You know, because if you're if you keep if, if shops can continue to close at the rate they are, and all you're left is you know with bloody delis and coffee shops then people aren't people are going to look around and say well my life hasn't been leveled up i can't go to sports direct anymore or whatever sports uh, direct. <laughs> um but but other but, shops are available yeah but by low but by you know cutting those rates and keeping those shops open it could be quite a little clever move but i think um having said that i think there could have been wider reform you know there could have been something to sort of maybe shave some more money off the bigger corporations maybe um and i think he's didn't he announce about um you're gonna say something yeah well obviously there has been that agreement signed by the g20 this literally like a couple of days ago you know stating that they're now having a you know, global corporation tax rate yes so i think obviously that's in, that's something that's like a long-term plan and i think it's something that's obviously really needed um because you know the world economy loses a lot a lot of money especially taxation by you know companies hiding their profits overseas so that obviously is a huge thing i didn't get mentioned at all because i think it's obviously something that we've wanted for a long time already um but but yeah that's what i would say i don't know why i feel like i'm defending the government here like all the time but there you go you're analyzing objectively <laughs> okay that's... good you be done with the budget or do you want well to i just more? want to say one more thing which i think you'd have an interesting opinion on is um a lot of people saying it was very brown-esque. Sorry, you're not like that coffee. It's so cold. Oh, <laughs> so, I didn't mean... Well, you said, you said, make everything right, get everything ready. I've got squash, it's happened. Um, everyone was saying it was very much a brown-esque budget. Did you hear this? Yeah. Um, and actually, it was a very optimistic budget. Uh, and, you know, you we talked about this in the past in terms of the politics of the future and I'm hope. Yes, modern. yes. Yeah. Vigorous. So, as I said in the previous two episodes, and as I will continue to say in every episode coming, I like politics where hope is given at every turn. And, you know, that's how people win elections. It's how, I, I always want to vote for the party who's the most optimistic about how things are going. I don't see why you wouldn't want that. You know, someone who's going to say things aren't 
bad, you know, or, or maybe if they're not quite right, we can sort them. A very Blair-esque sort of way of looking at things. Um, and yeah, I like that. Where does where does the line get drawn between optimism and boosterism? Because you've got a big boosterist prime minister at the moment. He loves boosterism. Yeah, he's oh, like, yeah, yeah. the UK are the best in the world at this time and the other. <laughs> That's pretty good. I world think... <laughs> winning, world beating track and trace system. Um, I think that um, they obviously are well over the line. I mean, things aren't looking good. Things don't look good at all this winter. Everyone knows that. Um, and I think that Sunak saying, you know, this is a, a budget of hope, this is a budget of how we're going to move forward, is frankly too soon because this winter is going to be bad. And I think people are going to then be like, well, you're saying everything's going to be fine, but I can clearly see that things are getting worse. Um, but that doesn't mean I don't, you know, as a general rule, appreciate that kind of talk. Um, if you're I thinking just think, as, a, as a layman voter. Yeah, yeah. I, just, I just think that perhaps as a political calculation this time they've overdone it I think I think maybe you need to be slightly more realistic and sort of look at how things are going and, and, and move from there uh, true and I, and I think I think we talked about this last week we talked about sort of the Tory party conference being probably the peak before the big fall because people are going to start feeling it really feeling it in their pay packets in, in their life next year and maybe they could have saved that rhetoric for maybe future budgets well, they yeah, they don't need it now. Mm. I mean, like, yeah, there's nothing. No, I think I saw a poll that's forty percent. Yeah, they don't. The I mean, I mean, they're not scrapping for anything right now. They don't, they don't have anything to win. They don't have. They don't need to bolster their own public um, opinion in any way. I think perhaps if he'd have, I don't know. Maybe their thinking was that the country has had a really bad time, and by announcing. You know, a bit of spending, a bit of this, a bit of that, and giving boosting um, long term that that should carry them through to the twenty twenty three election if they can hold that sort of rhetoric. But again, like I've already said, he's banking on growth, and I don't think the growth will be there. Unfortunately, I really don't because we're, we're already like very highly skilled. Our productivity as a country is pretty low and getting worse because of um, not being in the EU anymore. B word. Um, yeah. I don't know. That's uh, an interesting uh, you know? analysis, actually. Thanks, mate. That is. Um, Next, do you want to? Yeah, do you want to move on? What do, what do you want? What do you want to go to? Well, you <laughs> wanted to talk about the ministerial code. I've got about one sentence on it. So. Not a problem. Uh, it's it's the monologue I was talking about. Um, <laughs> you, <laughs> so you're about to go off. Yeah. So okay. uh, this is the news that the committee on standards of public life. Um, basically, they came to the conclusion that they should be giving. Uh, the independent advisers on ministers' interests more power. Um, the ex-spy chief John Jonathan Evans said that um, independent advisers should be appointed uh, by a panel made up of independent members and basically strengthening of powers um, to basically be able to suspend MPs, call for resignations, call for apologies. So I was extremely concerned when you started talking about this just then that I had researched the completely wrong thing but no, I think I think I know what you're talking about so essentially you're talking about that only the PM can decide at the moment um, yes. who to investigate for breaches in the ministerial code so at the moment he if you know for example if Pretty Patel does something absolutely horrendous he can say Oh no, it was fine. You know, she apologised. Only he can decide that, and it's not independent. Well, right? Exactly. So it, we've got the previous examples of um, again 
you're right, Priti Patel having found to be to have broken the ministerial code, and then Boris Johnson standing by her and saying, uh, no, consider the matter closed, thank you very much. And a, a previous advisor basically quit over this because um, he was like, well, what's what's the point of me? Um, and also, uh, what what the committee is also called for is called for strengthening the powers of the advisory committee on business appointments. So this is when MPs come out of public office and they, uh, you know, come out of high office and go into other jobs. For example, you've got the David Cameron and the Greensill scandal. Um, and you're right; currently, the PM can only initiate an investigation. Um, and you know. Also, you've got Boris Johnson sort of caving as well previously uh, to calling an investigation of himself refurbishing the number 10 flat. Um, and actually, he sort of appointed an advisor and was like, you're, you're my mate. You'll, you'll be nice to me. Yeah, for, for me, I just don't... How I, I read very briefly up on it because I had no idea what, what you're talking about. Mm. I hadn't read it anywhere. I just... I, I actually didn't know that only he can decide if he can be investigated... <laughs> He decides if he's investigated, and then he chooses the independent advisor. That, yeah, it, it's basically it seems like like a rule that's been in place for, and I assume it has been in place for hundreds of years, mm. and perhaps now we're slightly past that. Well, this is the thing: these are our elected politicians. It's the people who give them the power to, you know, we trust them with our vote to to, to make the decisions that that affect everyday life, right? And we expect them to be upheld to a very high standard in public life. And I think over the past 10 years, we've seen the democracy of of David Cameron's uh, government with lots of, you know, eaten friends, you know, being put in left, right and centre places. Uh, And we've also seen sort of the the Johnson government being really, uh, you know, really stoical in terms of accepting responsibility and and unwilling to be held accountable for their mistakes uh, and and some of the corruption as well we've got um, i don't know if you saw on the news rob roberts who's the mp who's coming back after having found guilty of of sexually harassing one of his staff um he was re-admitted back into the tory party he's given his membership back not the whip though that's an important point. Um, and he can now, uh, coming back after 12 weeks suspension, he can now sit as an end- independent MP. And you think, hang on, something's wrong there, especially in t- because Wait, of the Wayne so, Cousins thing. So he still sits as an independent MP? He does, and he, he, he'll probably sit on the government side of the benches. Well, I would imagine so. I d- yeah, I did hear about that, and I knew that he'd be re- obviously reinstated into the party, and I didn't, uh, but I had no idea that... He then been allowed to to continue sitting as an MP. I, that is well, that's mm. interesting. But is that something that introducing maybe a committee um, who, who decides on ministerial breaches and things like that would would be able to solve? Do you think? Pro- yeah, I think probably if it was given the right powers, it was given enough teeth. I think yeah, definitely. Um, but you know, you know, I, I'm absolutely sick of it. You've got with the COVID scandal, with all the the contracts being, being given to Tory donors, being given millions of pounds of public money, and some of them not even being able to you know deliver some of the things they were paid for. Friends being appointed to high places. I'm absolutely sick of it, Henry. I'm done with it. Yeah, I mean, it. I think it actually could be quite. I know Johnson wouldn't necessarily want to do it, but I think it would actually be a really good look for him to to you know create something where you do get something maybe like a select committee or something like that or a, a committee of um, independent people I don't know who they would be to then decide on if there has been breaches in min- ministerial well, I code think, sorry I, I've just realised I think there is already a committee committee on standards in public life that so what's where the this, issue? 
Well, I think that there's just not enough teeth in okay. some of the people investigating. And also, the PM can only inve- initiate investigations. So he's the only one that, say, that says, okay, guys, go. Go yeah. at it. Yeah. I, I, yeah, that is something that definitely needs to be changed because, unfortunately, we don't have a Prime Minister who I, would, I wouldn't really trust him as far as I could throw him, unfortunately. No. Um, and he's, and he's, he's... Sorry. He's obviously a man that doesn't have that many... Uh, morals, maybe perhaps. Yeah. Um, he 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 likes his friends. He's quite loyal to his friends, and um, especially some of his richer friends. Um, and I would say that um, if if ever there's a time where this committee, if it does in fact exist, needs to be giving more needs to be given more teeth, then it would be now. And I think it'd be a great look for him to to instrument that and and remove a bit of the sleaze from his sort of from well, his it's, government. It's sort of expected, and we've talked about this before. Being you know, Boris Johnson being very different and. Uh, Exceptional in the way that he gets away with all these blunders um, and very much sleaze. Sleaze is, uh, you know, I think Labour have sort of coined that, you know, they, they, they sort of hammer that home yeah, in previous. Like, but it's like factored months. into him, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah, and people people buy into that, which is which is absolutely crazy. Um, do you have anything else to say about it? I'm just sick of it. Yeah. I just want a bit more accountability. Yeah, yeah. A bit more respectability. I really doubt that it's going to happen, but yeah, mm. I, I think that would probably be a good idea as well. Yeah. I mean, I mean, do, on, on a concluding point, we've just got to remember that I can't remember how many years ago a minister resigned over calling a policeman a pleb. Yeah, plebgate. Yeah, that that wouldn't happen now, would it? No, no, no. Yeah, just show times have changed. They have changed. Um, anyway, I, I, again, I had no notes on it, so the few sentences Thanks I managed to chipper out. Yeah, yeah, I managed to get out there. So fishing row. Yeah, fishing row. That's exciting, isn't it? Um, obviously. Um, the French don't like us. That's pretty clear. Um, and whenever um, the French president needs to bolster uh, his public opinion, he likes to pick on us, which is, which is fair enough. Um, but essentially, I'll explain what it is at first. So the fishing row is the f- French accusing us and Jersey um, of unfairly turning down applications from dozens of French boats to fish in our waters. Um because of the Brexit deal, essentially it means that um, France have less are less able to fish in our waters than they, they once were. Now what they have to do, instead of just being able to go out and do that, because we're part of the EU, they have to apply to the UK government for the correct licences. We would then grant them the correct licences, um, and then they would be able to fish in, in, in UK waters. It's also the the seizure of a British boat, isn't it? Well, yeah, so, so that's... Um, that was retaliation. That's a, yeah, that's a retaliation to basically the licenses they say not being granted. Um, I've actually I've done a little bit of research on this one. Essentially, two percent of all the French applications have not been granted for licenses. Um, that is a tiny, tiny percentage. It's not. It's not. It's not something that's like increased really rapidly recently. It's not something that we've. I don't think I can see that anyone's ever mentioned it being an issue before um it seems like to me they're making a bit of a mountain out of a molehill and if you're basically saying to jersey we're going to cut off your electricity supply because you're not allowed to fish we're not allowed to fish in your waters which is absolute crap i think that is ridiculous immature and macron can shove it (laughs) (laughs) thoughts yeah yeah no so i think fishing reading about it has been a you know part of a row for decades and i think it 
a French president will never ever lose points for uh, picking a fight with the British over fishing. Um, also, what I've also read is that apparently for both both sides it doesn't add the fishing community doesn't actually add that much to the economy no um apart you know, me, me, you know it's, it's important fish. To the, it's important to the fishing community so yeah. I, I i can acknowledge that but um yeah and i really hope that it doesn't undermine cop 26 because i mean come on children i just feel like children the, the, fr- the french at the moment are being immature right they've got this You've got this like US uh, Australian UK deal, the deal where the submarine deal and like the information sharing deal that they kicked up a huge fuss about. Mm. Come on, boys, grow up a well, little bit. Well, that's a, that's a, they're very uh, prideful, aren't they? That's an issue with Scomo Scott Morrison. Oh yeah, but Scott Mo- <laughs> yeah, Scomo. A, I wouldn't say he's like a beacon of maturity, but um, but yeah, um, the fishing route is quite. It's one of these like news stories which I actually quite like. It's quite fun. I mean, you're arguing about fishing rights. It's it's not going to actually impact me. Maybe no, it won't impact me at all. But um, do you like fish? Yeah, uh, yeah, I do like fish. It's all right, but I don't think it's going to impact you know the fish on my shelves, my shelves, my you're fridge. So selfish. <laughs> oh my all god! All these fishermen, so shellfish ladies. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I and I, did you see also Britain gave. Uh, France a forty-eight hour deadline. Yeah, it's so silly. Isn't oh, it? but they they did back out of that. We they, we yeah. won that one. Jer- apparently, Jersey issued forty-nine extra licenses to French boats to try boats to try and de-escalate. I mean, it. come on, like forty-nine licenses, and the French are happy with that. They're willing to cause like an international scene over fifty boats. I love at, it. Like getting fish in. But what I would say, the only sort of analysis that I have, apart from Macron being childish, is that. Um, when we were in the EU, this sort of stuff used to happen a lot less, if at all. Like, we, you wouldn't get into these disputes because things are very clearly outlined. They're mediated by big countries like Germany, Italy, Spain, etc. The big EU. You know, big EU it, we're all under that blanket. And now we're out of that. I feel like we're, like, scrapping with a lot more nations, getting into silly disputes, you know, especially... I don't want to go into Northern Ireland, but obviously there's a huge mm. thing with Ireland, Northern Ireland. Now there's something going on with France. It's something that actually is going to really impact us long term if we can't you know, get negotiations right from the start, establish clear rules about even these silly little things. You know, because silly little things like you know, arguing over fish, you know, fish, fishing boat licenses and that sort of stuff, yeah, that's funny to laugh at or whatever. But if something happens bigger, which is going to impact our economy more, and we haven't already got the correct negotiations in place, that's not going to be good. Yeah, and I think there's there's two ways of, of looking at it, actually. You could look at it as EU states making an example of Britain because they've left the EU. They, we are the first nation, obviously, to, to, to leave the EU. Come well, on. that is exactly what they're trying to do. Well, uh, no, didn't no, didn't so, you hear that thing about that Politico intercepted that message at the that front letter. end. Yes, I did see that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it could be that. It could be an element of uh, our government trying to stand up for itself now it's left the EU and look good um, out of that. And I can, I kind of get that. I mean, I don't agree with it. But, but I mean, but, but that has worked so far. So, so obviously when Theresa May was in charge, she sort of was much more willing... Do you mean? Do you mean TM the PM? TM the P. When TM the PM was was about, she was much more willing to work with the EU as sort of you know to try and get a, a nice collaboration going. It, it basically got nowhere. Now Johnson's come in and is playing hardball. He is actually getting things across that perhaps 
Theresa May wouldn't have got across. So I'm not saying it's a bad strategy, but I do think it's a strategy that won't work for very long. <laughs> no. Uh, can I just say, basically, Boris Johnson's deal was just a TM the PM's Brexit deal, like rewritten. Just a little note here and there. <laughs> yeah, um, but, but those little notes are something that perhaps she wouldn't have got across the line. <laughs> oh, we won't get into that. Top 26? It's the B word. Yeah. I've got... I've got some things to say. Have you? Yeah. Um, should we? Let me. Should I go through what's yeah, been please. agreed so far? Please do. So, um, after announcing earlier that COP26 was going to be a bit of a failure, um, some meaningful things have been agreed, but probably to the standard of which I would expect. There hasn't been anything like insane announced. Um, so the key headlines so far is that forty nations, um, basically all the big ones, so you know, India, China. Brazil, US, us, EU, etc., um, have agreed to speed up affordable and clean technology worldwide by 2030, um, including big five ones, so energy, steel, hydrogen, agriculture, and road transport. That's 50% of emissions. So that's good. Mm-hmm. However, if you actually look into the deal a bit more, they're just agreeing to speed up. It means absolutely nothing. You know, you can speed it up by 0.1% and you've basically achieved the target or whatever. Winner. Exactly. Um, so that's fine. I mean, it's one of those promises that I think you would probably hear in 2010. And you go, oh, that's great. Or 2015, uh, the Paris. Uh, exactly. Yeah. I think, you know, we're a bit past that now. Can we let's get into some actual targets and yeah. you know, how they're going to hit them short term? Mm. Um, we'll be able to go into it more. Let me just do the headlines. Sure, sure. The next one is um, deforestation, which I was actually mm. a bit surprised about. Um, 100 countries. Um, representing 85% of the world's forests, including all the big ones, Brazil, Russia, Canada, Colombia. Brazil, definitely the big one there, and Russia. Um, Basically agreed to stop deforestation um, by 2030. Um, It's underpinned by £14 billion of um, financing to stop that. Um, I would say... no. Let me just go to the next point. Mm-hmm. Um, and the final one was India has put a target in place of being net zero by 2070. I saw that. So let's just, whilst you said there, it, let's start there. So what I've written is like, is that significant? Um, it's, I would say that it's significant um, in the fact that they are probably one of the, na- well, the, if not the first and the second fastest growing nation on earth in terms of like large economies. Um, and, and, you know, those economies essentially are always going to, um, prioritize growth like yeah. i mean like if when if you're a, a normal person in india you know and you're you're you know you've, you're a middle class or whatever you're your standard standard person you, you don't care right now about the environment unfortunately you just want to make sure that you know you and and your family and the people that you know their life is improving they've got enough to eat that you know they they're in that you know good accommodation and that kind of thing so in that way I think that it is a big step forward because it's quite hard. It's quite easy for us to say, yeah. you know, we'll be carbon neutral by 2050 and everyone else should be too. But really, India is trying to pull its nation out of poverty here, you know, while achieving the same goal. Yes. But mm-hmm. it's way off what's required. Absolutely. It's way off. It's too late. Um, however, you know, it is a developing country with developing industries. Um, but then again, this is where international investment and aid should come in um, and I did see that 12 countries have pledged 12 billion dollars for uh, of public funding to, to for developing countries between um, this year and 2025 which I think is absolutely the right thing to do uh, it, it really is an international effort to help other countries be green um, and stop you know 
going above 1.5% 1.5 degrees celsius above pre-industrial levels because you know it's not it's not there it's not india's fault for being a little bit behind the world you know no. it's sort of it's sort of the rest of the the developed world that are, are not giving enough aid to sp- spread the wealth around and try and help other countries out Absolutely. of poverty so it definitely is got to be a global effort to 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 beat this thing definitely and i think it's really um really good of brazil they've pledged pledged to cut their greenhouse emissions by 50% by 2030 and that's up by a previous commitment of 43%. So I, I think that's, that's pretty crazy considering who they have as their president. Absolutely, yeah. However, when I was reading about the deforestation, that segues nicely into that, I was reading about um, uh, what their commitment actually was and the statement made by, I think it was their environment minister, about this. Um, and they've what they've pledged is illegal deforestation will stop by 2030, right? Oh, really? But Bolsonaro is keen on very keen on legal deforestation <laughs> he approves a lot of it so what what i'm saying is that you know we need them to stop it entirely if possible again i just think it's super hard for us to sit here and and tell brazil to do that because we have pillaged the uk all the way through you know there's basically no forest left here and we used to be absolutely carpeted with it so now for us to turn around and go, you know come on guys can you not improve your own lives here? We're trying to we're trying to enjoy our life over here. It's hard, but but by pledging you know fourteen billion pounds, it's not a massive amount of money, but it's a bit that that goes some way, I would say, to, mm. to helping them with that. And actually, I did just before you came, Henry. I uh, was listening on the radio to Boris Johnson giving a press conference at COP twenty six, and he, I, I did sense I did get a sense of urgency. Um, I get, got a sense of urgency in terms of well, maybe that siren is oh, uh, you're right <laughs> I think of <laughs> looking a bit sweaty no right, right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I did get a sense of urgency in terms of him talking about the action that needs to come um, you know and uh, he did use one of his famous uh, analogies about being five one and a half time um, you know wanting to come back from that which I mean if he's using those sorts of analogies for this Maybe he's he, he understands how important it is. Whether he does anything about it is another is another thing. I mean, by the budget, you would say, yeah, perhaps not. Yeah, um, uh, but I think what's really clear is it needs to be radical. You know, what needs to happen is COP twenty six. This is the time. You know, this is it. This is it. I will we'll come back to my tweet tweet the week later. But um, there's something really poignant um, about that. But I think. Um, and this sort of got me thinking. There is a real problem between the global goal um, of growth um, and sort of reducing climate change, um, and you know, and going to greener energy. Um, because really, it's it's going to be under you know the way we measure growth is GDP, right? You know, should we stop measuring growth by GDP and start measuring growth in a different way? Because the way that we aspire. To, to, to generate growth is through, you know, uh, there's a really good quote from um, Rutger Bregman's Utopia for Realists, which I've read. It's really good. And I'll just say this. Besides being blind to lots of good things, the GDP also benefits from all matter of human suffering, gridlock, drug abuse, adultery, gold mines for gas stations, rehab centres and divorce attorneys. If you were the GDP, your ideal citizen would be a compulsive gambler with cancer who's going through a drawn-out divorce that he copes with by popping into fistfuls of Prozac and going berserk on Black Friday. Environmental pollution even does double duty. 
One company makes a mint by cutting corners while the other is paid to clean up the mess. By contrast, a centuries-old tree doesn't count until you chop it down and sell it as lumber. So I thought it was a really good quote. You know, it's mad to think it's surely going to be unsustainable to grow exponentially every single year, year upon year. There's got to be a ceiling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know we've used GDP since World War II, um, and it only measures sort of monetary value, so services, goods, um, and, you know, in the economy during a given period. But I guess during World, you know, World War II, post-World War II, the, the world chose to, to, to measure growth by GDP because that's what mattered. People, they wanted countries to grow. They wanted them to prosper because they didn't want another war and they wanted peace amongst the world. But now, you know, maybe what's important now is that is the climate change and stopping, um, you know, global warming from happening. And maybe we need to change the way we, we measure growth. But unfortunately, that's going to have to be a global cooperation in terms of changing the way that the whole world um, measures growth so that we all sort of go towards a, a single goal. Yeah, it's, um, shit. Um, yeah, it's an interesting idea. I think it's, it's I mean, probably in an idealistic world, it's, it's a good idea. But, you know, that's never, unfortunately, that's not never going to happen. Well, the thing, you say this, right? Right. But what at what point in, you know, where climate change is affecting the world, do we actually start getting really radical? What countries need to be flooded? What communities need to be destroyed because of climate change? For us to start thinking like that. And this book, Utopia for Realists, does sort of touch on it. And, you know, I think maybe we need to start thinking about that. I think the Greens... The Green Party want to do something like that. I know the OECD, they have instead, they, they sort of came up with a, a dashboard of qualities of life. So that's housing, jobs, income, uh, well-being, health, education, stuff like that. And um, they well, sort of started that thinking on measuring growth in different ways and what we value in life rather yeah, than the, just the economy. All this, I mean, all this stuff is already measured. You can't, you can't say like all this stuff isn't already um, put out there and people don't know about it and and this stuff isn't it's not like everything in the world is based off GDP it is it is something that is obviously really closely looked at especially by the Chancellor and obviously the Bank of England etc but you know it's not all that the government looks at you know the government's doing lots of things to do with climate change probably some of the most in the entire world and other countries rely on GDP a lot obviously because they they need to grow to be able to push their people out of poverty um i would argue that i think you're probably overstating the reliance on gdp that's already there i think obviously countries grow and gdp is a great way to to track that growth and see how you're doing it as an overall level but all these other things like housing quality of life um you know environmental policy etc are already tracked but I agree. I think more could be done. Why do we obsess over that? You know, um, because it's an e- it's an easy way for a government to show that people's quality of life is improving, isn't it? Because what the GDP? Yeah, absolutely. It's an easy way, but I wouldn't. But I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily say that that's all governments focus on. No, no. But I mean, you know, we could have growth. In G- we've had, you know, we, we we've only had a recession two thousand eight and a recession in in my politically active and, and aware lifetime um, and the, obviously the recession because of COVID but you know what what do pe- everyday people feel 
and I guess that's what I'm trying to get at is that why don't we we obsess about those things a bit more maybe yeah that's what I've got to say about that yeah well um that is very interesting I can't lie um but you know take that to your uh philosophy podcast instead of here should we move on <laughs> okay <laughs> I'm just joking. I'm joking. Um, you should have prepared me for that one because I have nothing Apologies. to say. Um, well, it's just a bit of thinking, bit of analysis. No, very interesting. Because that's what people tune into this podcast I would, for. I would analysis. Quite, I would quite like to listen to, uh, to read that book if possible. It's just it on my shelf be, over there. Seems super interesting. I will lend it to you. So, my final topic, or the final topic, um, is interest rate rises. It sort of goes into the budget already and goes into a quite other I think we've obviously already touched on it but I just wanted to have a brief overview because I think it could be quite influential in what happens in the next few months and the next few years in my lifetime um, I think perhaps because of the EU and a few other measures that were put in place measures um, for example by Gordon Brown to separate um, the Bank of England from the government so they're independent they set the interest rate independent of the government that's what I think uh, they first did exactly they, yeah. has meant that um, in- inflation and inter- interest rate rises haven't really been an issue in UK politics for uh, over 20 years I no no since the 70s 70s 80s I just mm. I, I've never thought of them really particularly um, perhaps because you know I don't own a house or, and things like that I don't you know I don't take out loans and and that kind of thing but it hasn't been in the sort of national discussion for a long time and especially hasn't been in like the budget and that kind of things when they're announcing you know um, interest rate rises and that kind of thing so I'll I'll basically just explain what's happening so um, interest rates um, are going to rise and that's essentially because of inflation looking like it's going to be they're estimating about 4.4% next year, could even be 5%. So the Money Policy Committee um, is are the people that decide the interest rates. They're basically part of the Bank of England. They're a committee of nine people, of economists essentially. They um, have a commitment to keep um, the inflation rate between two, well, at 2% essentially. It needs to be between 1% and 3%, right? Because if you keep your interest rate uh, if you keep your inflation rate at uh, about, about 2%, they've figured out that that is essentially the sweet spot where people still want to go out and spend money, but they will also save sort of the right amount as well. Because obviously, if you've got a little bit of inflation, you don't want to save too much because your money's you know, losing money. You're losing money as yep. it's in your pocket, mm-hmm. um, but it's not enough that you know you want to go out and spend it all and not have any, essentially. Um, with inflation looking like it's going to be 4 to 5%, what the government and the Monetary, uh, Monetary Policy Committee need to do then is raise interest rates. And what that does is it means that, say, if I've got a tenner in my pocket and the interest rates are higher, I think, oh, I'm not going to spend that money. What I'll do is I'll put it in the bank and I'll get some interest on it. I won't need to save it and then I'll have more that way. Sorry, I just thought I should explain it, essentially. I'm learning. Um, <laughs> um but what this essentially will mean, and what I think could be quite troublesome for the government, and why I wanted to sort of mention and bring it up, is that um, an increase um, in interest rates essentially means um, people's mortgages are going to become more expensive. So people that are on standard rate mortgages, um, this is people who are on like standard variable rates or, or are tracking the Bank of England rate. Now, I'll just briefly stop. You know a lot about uh, mortgages because you... I've taken your exams, aren't you? Yeah, I've got one on Thursday. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> so it basically means that, um, that I think there's about one point... No, what is it? 70... What is it? 90% or something. Wow, I'm just pulling figures out of the air. Go on. 
a lo- very large percentage of people are on fixed rate mortgages, but there is a certain percentage that are on basically like variable rate yeah, mortgages, mm-hmm. and that will in- that will only increase if if inflation and interest rates start to vary because then um, banks who are le- and lenders will think there's uncertainty. They'll think, oh, we don't want to you know let people have our fixed rate deals because we don't know if that's going to be cost effective over the long term. But what that means is that that's another thing that's going to hit the government. It's it, because people are going to see that their their mortgages are going to go perhaps through the roof. We don't know that for sure, but they're going to go. They're going to increase. The bank rate's going to increase, which means that their payments are going to increase. And this is another thing that I think by the end of it won't even be. It's not going to be something that affects them even in this budget. I think by the end of next year, by the mm. end of twenty twenty two, because inflation is still going to be pushed higher by that time. And that is going to affect people's mortgages. And I think that's something that people are going to get really pissed off at. I've, I've read that somewhere mortgage in, mortgage um, interest payments are going to be rising by an annual 13% by 2023. That is huge. That's huge. And another, th- another thing where uh, the reason why, well, there's a multitude of reasons. One of the reasons why the housing market continues to rise and continues to, house prices continue to go up, is essentially because lenders can give people more and more and more money to borrow because they know that the interest rates are so low. Mm-hmm. So it means they can borrow from you know large large investors for very cheap amounts and give those um, mm. give those loans to you know you or me for quite cheap. If that's not in place and we start to have things like uncertainty where interest rates are fluctuating up and down, they're sky high through the roof. This housing market won't last and it will crash. And then we really will be in trouble because if that happens, well, you and I, we can buy a house for fun. No, but the economy will crash because mm, people yeah. buy a house at the moment. They they used to buy a house, you know, seventies, eighties. You'd buy a house because you need somewhere to live. You know, you want somewhere you can raise your children. You want somewhere, you know, that can feel like a home. Now people buy the house because they want to make money for financial investment. Yeah, yeah. because um, I saw a map the other day that showed the UK and it showed and it and it said what's risen more this year who's made more have i made more as a person or has my house made more than me just by an increase in its value and it was something like 70 or 80 percent of the country their house made more than they did no because house rise health prices are increasing yeah. by an average of 15 percent last year it is outrageous it is a bubble it's something that won't last and the government will pay the piper for reducing um, stamp ju- stamp duty tax and, and that kind of thing to keep that um, bubble mm. going. Yeah. I just think it is something that is going to come back to bite them and there is nothing that they can do to stop that. Yeah, and I, I think lots of banks have also acted upon this already. So I, I was reading uh, the Financial Times that uh, lots of banks have already uh, raised their fixed-term mortgages to not, not below a percent. So, you know, banks are already acting upon this. Yeah. So people going for mortgages... Um, are going to feel you know they're not going to get the be- better um, a better deal than they did before. Yeah, and and overall that's not when you think when you look at that on its own you think oh that's not that's not too bad. But what that means is that I think once that housing market starts to even falter, once mm-hmm. those prices don't rise for a period or stagnate, 
that is going to cause something where it's, it's people are suddenly not going to be as confident in general about going out and spending money, about you know doing things that they perhaps wanted to do because they relied on that house price increase. When they took out the loan originally, they thought, oh, well, I'll buy this house in this developing area. And it's going to appreciate in it's price. Going to appreciate, it's going to appreciate in price. I might not even need to have any savings because I know that my house is essentially a bank. And once that isn't starting to happen, eesh. I'm, yeah, I'm concerned, essentially. Very concerned. You heard it first. Henry's concerned. I'm concerned, and that means everyone else should be as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, you've been right before and you've been right again. Um, <laughs> I don't have too much to say about it, because you oh, know that, a lot... That was good, wasn't it? That was off the top. Yeah, really? <laughs> yeah. Well, well done. Uh, yeah, no, because you know a lot more about me than... Uh, and I've, I've just got four points, and yeah, look, I've got... Low rates have fueled a rampant, rampant housing market, which is exactly what you said. Should we move on? <clears throat> yeah, is that, is that it? I think that's it, bud. That's it. Excellent. I mean, um, like we said, there wasn't that much that went on this week. Um, there was a bit. How, what are we at? Talk to me. An hour. Perfect. An, an hour. Do you want to do your tweet of the week? Because I do need to head off. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, can we have the proper... Um, Oh yeah, <clears throat> I do. I'm feeling a little bit throaty, oh, uh, but I'll, I'll give it my best. Don't breathe too far over here. It's the tweet of the week. Excellent. God, still got it. I mean, I can do it any time of day, day or night. I'll right. be there. Tweet of the week. Love it. No worries. Right. Uh, let me just get my Twitter up. My Twitters. It's my Twitters. Okay. As my grandma calls it. The my Twitters. <laughs> no, she doesn't call. It. My dad calls it because he okay. knows it. Annoys me. Uh, right. Uh, profile. Do you want me to rest? So this is actually oh. a. Um, it's by someone called Professor Rupert Reed, um, and it's actually a picture. And I'm going to have to describe it because um, I obviously can't um, can't uh, show you guys. Um, but basically, it's this it basically in a in a desert in a in a post apocalyptic landscape, and it's a, a middle aged man ho- holding a bag of money, and he's handing it to a little kid who's on an oxygen mask with an oxygen tank on his back. And he says, here, son, I saved all this money for your future. I think that's just very poignant um, because of COP26. Yeah, and I think that I think that sort of feeds in really well to what you were saying about growth. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. About how people are obsessed with, with savings. Obsessed. Um, but, yeah, that is especially really poignant because I feel like countries at the moment, a lot of the commitments that are coming out, they just don't feel enough. Do you know what I mean? Like the, mm. I mean, I think some countries, you know... Uh, I don't want to claim that we're making big commitments, but I think we're doing pretty well. I think EU's doing well. Or at least being seen to. Yeah, Yeah. the EU's making big commitments as well. Mm -hmm. But unless we can get everyone else on board, you know, I I just don't think anything's ever going to be enough until countries are staring down the barrel of... Absolutely. And I think, you know, this is the question I'm asking myself, is like, at what point in this crisis, because it is a crisis, it's an urgent crisis, and we need to address it, at what point in the crisis do, do we need to get to for people to start taking radical action because this is the world that we live in and you know other countries we are quite protected at the moment in this country but other countries are really feeling i think the president of um one of the caribbean countries yeah was oh, it I saw Barbados? That. no was it um it was some, i i did, I did know what you're talking about yeah one of the apologies I, I don't know the country i can't remember the exact country but um was saying you know this is already happening yeah, this is happening in, in my your, country. And he also said 
it wasn't something that we've caused. We're already, yeah. you know, almost net zero. This is something that's been imposed on us by developing and, and developed nations. And that's why these developed nations need to solve it, really. I mean, they have pledged 100 billion a year. And that's, that's a significant amount um, towards these um, these countries that are, are the highest risk. But you're, what you're doing there is you're papering over the cracks of the issue by, by saying... You know, we'll help you build flood defences. We'll help you do all this stuff. Treating the symptoms. Exactly. I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously, lots of other commitments have been made, and we've yeah. talked about them. Mm. Um, but it won't be enough. But I don't know what anyone could do yeah. about it. Um, I'd also like to issue an apology in terms of an ac- accuracy thing. Is this um, like the end? Is this like when you open like the Times and they've got their like yeah. their apology yeah. section? Yeah. So this is redaction. the tiniest part of the podcast because we don't get anything wrong in this podcast usually. Um, yeah. Um, I said the other week that going vegan was the best way to reduce your carbon footprint, but you sent me a I graphic. Glee- I gleefully sent you a graphic, <laughs> um, which was analysis done by. Um, and I think it was like an analysis of like 200 studies of like what is essentially best for cutting your carbon footprint. That's right, I think yeah. being vegan was like number th- number it was, three. It's it still was, pretty yeah, high. Yeah, so it's like I think it reduces your carbon footprint by 0.9 tons a year. I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot. I mean, and Henry, what is the top one? Do you remember? It was not having a car. And what do you have? I drive my mum's car <laughs> occasionally. <laughs> I mean, so, put me to the sword for that. Christ. Head on the block. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that can reduce your carbon footprint by two tons. Yeah, that's a lot, isn't is, it? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's based... Ask me if I have a car. Uh, do you have a car? No. Am I looking to get one because I want to go surfing? Yes, I am. <laughs> but let's not, let's not talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, I'm, I need to go. I need to, yeah, I know, I need yeah. to ruin someone at squash. Yeah, you did. Yeah, well, it was already talked about. We don't need to talk about it again, the wiping of the floor. I played Mike the other day. Yeah, yeah. Who's our housemate? Your housemate who's mm. good at everything. Yeah, bastard. Um, bastard. I I only lost one game by eleven points to nine. I was That's pretty happy with that. Did you win the rest? No, I, I lost the rest. Oh, okay. <laughs> but it, I've only played like I don't know, like five times. And he used to play. Well, apparently, he used to play want, like regional or something. Do you, you want to? Oh, fuck's sake. <laughs> do you want to just let me know when you're playing squash? I'll give him a Charlie horse before it goes. Well, the or thing li- is, limp onto that. that well, court. the thing is, he was already absolutely hanging. Like he's so hungover, <laughs> and he's like, all I've done today is like drank some smoothie and then threw up, and I still got absolutely slaughtered. So maybe mm. I shouldn't. I don't know why I'm gloating about it. Like I've had some big victory. <laughs> no, no, I just I just got battered by someone. I mean, annoyingly, I also you know, find that if I play market anything, any any sort oh, of be so good about it. It makes it so, so irritating, so annoying. Anyway, no one wants well, to know who this guy is. So. Well, do you know what? It, I don't know if he's listened to it all the way through, and this will be a test. This will be a test. Yeah, fuck you, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> if you hear this, you can yeah. go back at me, but I bet you won't. Yeah. Anyway, all right then. Um, have a good squash game. Thank you. And um, a good good exam. Bit bit nervous. Yeah. As well. Yeah. Best of luck, mate. Yeah. I believe in you. Um, when do you want to do Sunday. this? Sunday. Sunday, yep. Yep, we, we can, can do find that. Some, it might be a short podcast because we, we're leaving less time. Um, I'm actually on a night Sunday, so if you could, if we could do it during the, in the afternoon. That's no worries. We shouldn't talk about this right now. Great. Okay. Okay. okay bye, everyone. <laughs> See you guys. Bye. <laughs>